0: You are now listening to The Griot's Black Podcast Network, Black Culture Amplified.
1: Hello, this is Myesha Kai, lifestyle editor here at The Griot, and I am back with another episode of Writing Black, where we feature... Black thinkers, black writers, black leaders, and we have an amazing one with us here today, which is Ben Jealous. You may know him as the youngest ever <laughs> president and CEO of the NAACP. Um, he is also a prominent and acclaimed journalist, a best-selling author. Uh, and now the new executive director of the Sierra Club, among many other accomplishments. Hello, Vangelis. Thank you for joining us
0: today. Thank you, Myesha. It's great to be with you.
1: <laughs> I'm so tickled. Um, and we're here to discuss your latest book, yeah. which um, I love this title so much. It's called Never Forget Our People Were Always Free. This came out in January. Uh, this is a gorgeous book, uh, the subtitle being A Parable of American Healing. And as as hopeful as I found that title I also was like you know that's where yeah it... talk to me about that yeah, yeah well, talk that... to me about that I know the title actually came from your grandmother which is amazing um you know you quote her in this book this really incredible woman who was an activist in her own right and a change maker in her own right but I am I was I love this title and I want to talk about what you see as as this vision
0: for American healing that we so desperately need. So, you know, the title was like this onion I kept peeling back. You know, my grandmother mm-hmm. uh would just kind of throw it out there, like for example, when my sister and I were too curious about why our family were so light skinned. Like I'm I'm darker than my grandma. She was darker than her than her mom. And you know, we talking about like, rape on the plantation, stuff like that. Yeah. And my grandmother like like yelling over like a soup pot would just say, Never forget our people were always free. And I was little, it made my brain hurt. And when I was a teenager, I got, you know, a little more confrontational. I was like, Grandma, what are you talking about? Three of your four grandparents were born into slavery, and the fourth one, your your own sister's dead probably a rapist. So like who was free, grandma? The rapist? She did not like that. Um and what I realized what eventually was that she was repeating something that her mom would say, her grandma who was born into slavery would say, her great grandma would say, and, and ostensibly repeating it because of how it made her feel, that it gave her a mm-hmm. sense of pride, you know, kind of grounded her you know in our universal humanity. Well, I peeled back and I realized she was cousins to Thomas Jefferson. So my first theory was like, well, maybe this is just a colloquial way of saying you know, all men are born with certain inalienable rights, among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That was said in the context Fair. of a monarchy Fair. and feudalism, right? It was a radical idea, yes. and it did not comport with the reality of most men who were even reading that in the Americas at the time. But um, I sent down with some historians, including Henry Louis Gates Jr., and it was clear there was more layers of the onion to peel back. And so... Um when we peeled and we peeled and we peeled, what we figured out was my grandmother's female Kunta Kente, if you will, in her maternal line, the first woman to show up in America on the maternal line was a pirate woman from Madagascar. Mm. And that just blew my mind. She came from Madagascar on one of the 17 slave ships that arrived in America from that island roughly half of which would arrive in New York, and half in Virginia. All of them but one were piloted by a known European pirate. It's a long story, it's in the book, but the bottom line is that only 17 slave ships ever came to the U.S. from Madagascar. It was an irregular slave trade that was maintained by pirates. 16 out of 17 of those ships was piloted by a known European pirate. The European pirates have been at war at that point for decades. if not more than a century with the pirates in Madagascar, who are Creole people descended from the Polynesian founders and the East Africans that they traded with. And um, and that was their stock. She was uh, of what they called the, the Vlaka Netola, the people of the Asian canoe in Madagascar. And a lot of those folks are pirates to this day. And you're like, well, wow. why, what a pirate woman say to her children and grandchildren born into slavery, but never forget our people were always free. And why would she say it? It could be a battle cry, a call to insurrection, or it could just be a way, sort of an acquired way of instilling a rebellious spirit in these young people, allowing them to understand that freedom had been their people's history and therefore must be their people's destiny. And when I looked at the women in the family who were repeating it, Two one, they were uniquely rebellious in our family tree. My mom sued her high school when she was twelve, so she could desegregate when she was fifteen. You know, my grandma's grandma ran away from slavery, and still had a fortitude to come back to the same plantation after the war and demand a right. paying job. You tell that story in the book. You know, yes. like like it's these are strong women, and it's like you know, I think it's exactly what you said. You know, you said like basically like you like the way it sounds, you like the way it makes you feel. That's exactly why they shut it. That's exactly why they shut it.
1: You know, I, I did. I did really like it. And I I like so much that so I called my own mother. and was like, listen to this title. By the way, she'll be reading the book Ah, this weekend. Can
0: everybody buy the book for yourself and your mama, please? (laughs) Never
1: look at That's right. Please do. But this idea of a parable for American healing, you know, it's like it feels like we're so deep in it. And listen, I am uh, well into my 40s now, so I've been here a minute. Uh, You know, I still think of myself as a relatively young person. But at at the same time, you know (laughs)
0: know, your moisturizer
1: game listen, is like, keep it up is working well. I'm the lifestyle editor I get a lot of I get a lot of samples <laughs> but that's aside. Uh, you know but you know I will say that like you know we're at this juncture and you and I both uh obviously you know, one of the beautiful things about being Gen X is that we've seen, we've seen our own industrial and digital revolution take place. We've seen the advent of the internet. We've seen MTV start. We've seen all these things happen. Um, But the one thing that has been constant is racism in its middle, it's many iterations. And, um, and, and also we saw the advent of political correctness, like what, whatever that was supposed to mean. And then the backlash against it. And, that particular pendulum swing. And as you point out in the book, we are at this juncture where it just, I I mean, it's so, uh, I mean, in certain ways, it's so nonsensical and vitriolic and absurd. And you kind of want to laugh, but it's, you know, now in fact, affecting our entire educational system. Obviously it's long affected our policing system. Um, But you hold out hope. And I want to know where the hope comes from.
0: Yeah. You know, my grandma, when I was a kid and I was dealing with racism on the playground, she would say, "Oh baby, just feel like, at first, like, did they hurt you?" And you know, oftentimes I answer, I was like, "No, actually, I kind of hurt them." You know, like I was not afraid of a fight as a kid, and okay. she would say, "Well, first of all, I don't want you in any fights you can walk away from, and secondly, um, baby, just feel sorry for them." It's so, like, can you imagine what it must be like to just walk around so so full of hate? <laughs> like, yeah. She's like, it sounds exhausting, <laughs> no, frankly. Kids like, yeah. <laughs> feel like, so sorry for and this was the best part. She said, so, for some people, baby, just having to be themselves is punishment enough. And that flipped the whole script. I came, I walked in the door feeling like a victim, and I walked out the door feeling sorry for the person who had attempted to, to victimize me. And, th- and there were mm-hmm. a, there was a lot of wisdom in that. She was a social worker, she been to one of the best social work schools in the country where I now teach the University of Pennsylvania. And, um, and she understood without getting into the heavy psychology with her, you know, juvenile grandson, that nobody comes into the world as a victimizer. You know, they come into the world and they're victimized themselves in some way. And then that twists them into being somebody who victimizes others. And Mm -hmm. so that's what she, I think, was setting me up to learn. Now, on on her optimism, her optimism used to drive me crazy because when you go to these elite universities where you're literally there to become like an expert in something, you know, you, (laughs) you very quickly become jaded. It's part of being an expert is being jaded. The easiest way to be right, the cheapest way to be right is to be a pessimist. And my grandmother would explain that by describing life as a boxing match. And she would say, you know, it's true pessimists are right more often. It's also true that optimists win more often. And you have to decide, baby, which one of this life is going to be more important to you, being right more often or winning more often. And then she just laughs at. I'll take winning. <laughs> but her point about the boxing match is, she said, look, imagine you're fighting George Foreman And the rumble and the jungle. And, you know, you get in as you. Well, you get in the ring, you're probably going to be like, oh, man, it's George Foreman. Oh, he's going to hit me upside the head. He's going to knock me down. It's going to be a mess. And by the fourth round, you'll probably throw in the towel because you're like, if you make it there, yes. You know, three three points is a trend. It happened first round, second round, third. Why am I getting in the fourth? Or you can get in like Muhammad Ali and say, you know what? Yeah, all that's probably gonna happen, but this might be the round I don't get knocked down. And Muhammad Ali did that for like 11 rounds. Dave Chappelle and I once watched that movie about 24 times in like one year. I know that movie very well. It's called When We Were Kings, and it's all about the rumble and yes. the jump. Yes, it's a classic And it's actually now, yes. kind of a metaphor for Dave's life. I realized years later that that was like mindset training when we were 20 years old. Okay. But former keeps I mean, Ali keeps getting into the ring and he keeps getting beat up. And he gets to the 11th round, he's like, you know what? George is getting kind of tired from beating me up. I think I can take him in the 12th. I only have to be standing in the 12th, and the, and I win the whole game. doesn't matter how many times I was knocked down before. And that's what he does. And so, you know, that's ultimately—I do believe that we're, we're going to triumph over racism. I do believe we will reach the place that mm-hmm. Frederick Douglass said we were destined to achieve as a nation, to be the, quote— most perfect example, of the unity and dignity of the human family that the world has ever seen. I also believe that it's going to be a pretty rough mid-century. The mid-centuries, you know, call it from, like, you know, the mid-20s to, like, the mid-70s, that kind of yeah. middle 50 years are always tough in America. It was true that way in the 1900s, and the 1800s, and the 1700s. It looks true. like it's going to be that way. But you know what? We always pull it out at, at the end, like... Muhammad Ali in the 12th, you know, we always call it out in this country at the end of the century things you can look back and say, wow, you know, 1990 was a whole lot better than 1910. You know, 1890. Was I agree with you. I do. And I think it might not be us. It might be our kids. But before the end of this century, they'll be
1: Well, I mean, you know, I'm hoping we we leave that we leave an environment for our kids to to see that in. Uh, But I will uh, I do want to talk to you more about that and some of the other big names. You just mentioned one big name and I want to mention a few more when we come back with more Writing Black and Vangelis. All right. We are back with Vangelis and more Writing Black. We are talking about uh ben's new book never forget our people were always free a parable of american healing we were just talking about the fact that like you know i i also hold out a lot of hope i i am a firm believer i don't know if you i'm not a particularly religious person but i'm definitely a spiritual one and i definitely think like on some sort of broader karmic level <laughs> we're gonna get with ours, right you know it's gonna work out but i do think that um it is a hard, this has been a hard road. It's been hard for every generation of black Americans to go through. Um, you know, my parents, your parents, grandparents, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And now I think we're here and a lot of us are, are living through through this in a very, um, I would say middle to upper middle class fashion that our parents weren't necessarily, my parents were not afforded that. Um, you know, like we all have these kind of, we talk about first gen conversations in America a lot. And I think like with black people and black Americans in particular, sometimes whether it's being the first generation to go to college, which I'm not in my family, but I am the first generation to not have experienced poverty, you know, in, in a real way. And of course, what we know statistically is that that's a fight too, to make sure you stay out of that. Cause just because you're, you know, your parents achieve it as a black American, you're not necessarily guaranteed to achieve it. and, you know, you come from this legacy of um, really incredible leaders, people who really believed in, um, who were really—I should not just believed in, but very judicious and strategic about, um, you know, amassing security, not just wealth, like security, you know, which I don't think that all of us have an education on here, and as we know that that often translates to some political power, not always, but some. Um, And you've done such tremendous things with the legacy that you've been handed. Um, Tell me a little bit about like, what you hope, um, inspirationally, that people will take from this book, because I do think that Sometimes for the generation, like even my generation, which I believe is also your it generation is. and the and the, and the and the and the ones who're seeing me right, right. And I'm I'm listen, I'm turning forty eight this year, there so you go. <laughs> like, You know. Even the generation right behind us, it's like, you know, I, I wonder I I con- I get concerned sometimes about our complacency. Mm, yeah. I get concerned mm-hmm. about our apathy about I know, voting. I, I get concerned about, you know, the fact that we seem a little disconnected from the things that made it possible for us to be this comfortable. Do sure. Have, do you share Yeah, concerns? and I
0: talked about it a bit in the book. You know, my, my mom grew up in the public housing projects in West Baltimore mm-hmm. first after her childhood, and my grandparents taught me real lessons in resilience. They never stopped learning, and they kept going to school into their 40s, you know, just to be able to kind of move up, you know, move out, move up on kind of the, you know, sort of like very Jefferson's, you know, old song, right? Yeah. And uh, and my grandfather typically had like two or three jobs, you know, um, but the most important thing that my grandmother did for me was get me to understand that I had to fight, that I had to know what I was fighting for, that I had to know what other people had fought for and won, and therefore we had inherited so that I could safeguard that as far as like rights, like the right to vote, you know, things like that. But I also had to know what my goal was, how I was gonna move the ball forward for my children, for my, you know, grandchildren, if you will. Um, yet I'm born and, Eric, you know, Gen X was an experiment for black because the narrative when we came into the world was all the big drag attack at slate that, uh, you know, they had killed Jim Crow, just like they killed Jim Crow's daddy's slavery. And, you know, and so now everything was fine. Rainbows and fairy tales, you know, the content of your character, not the color of your skin, all of that. And then mm-hmm. we came of age as I, you know, as I discussed my book, you know, there's, I had this, this reckoning. I was at a friend's 21st birthday party. I wasn't 21, but we were all drinking. and and uh, yeah. that was college and, and around a toast go up to the fact that one more of us has survived to 21. And it was like, everything that my grandmother built up in me to be able to power through, just like she did with my grandmother, with my mother when they were getting themselves out of the housing projects, kind of came crashing down because I was like, you know, you just, you, you told me all we had to do was keep our nose clean, study hard, and work a straight line, you know, walk a straight line, and it was like people were dropping all around me in college kids would go to parties and end up getting 5 years for crack position. cuz like one person in a crack rock 50 people in the room yet everybody's facing charges right. you know it right. yeah, because you know back then literally well, two two rocks of crack rather were enough to literally bring charges against an entire party as being a conspiracy to distribute crack Like, how are 50 people ever going to smoke two rocks to crack? But yet they were willing to sentence to at least threaten them with the equivalent of 250 years in prison across the entire group. And so as I was watching classmates head off to prison, as I was counting friends that had been shot and killed or sent to prison, I had to reckon with the fact that, like, everything wasn't okay. That we were the most murdered in the country. We were the most incarcerated in the planet. And... And I just thank God that my grandmother helped me understand sooner rather than later that my generation was going to have to fight, too.
1: Yeah, and I love that. And as a member of your generation, I definitely love that. We're going to talk about that more. And also, you know, I do want to talk more about... <laughs> the, the phenomenon that is Gen X, the small <laughs> phenomenon. And also, uh, you know, the, that most incarcerated statistic, which is really striking. We're going to do both when we come back with just a little more writing black and then jealous
2: the griot black podcast network is here and it's everything you've been waiting for news talk entertainment sports and today's issues all from the black perspective ready for real talk and black culture amplified? be inspired listen to new and established voices now on the Grio black podcast network listen today on the Grio mobile app and tune in everywhere great podcasts are heard all right, we're back with more.
1: Riding Black and Vangelis, who you will know from some several aspects, including being uh, the leader of the NAACP for several years. You were actually appointed executive director and CEO of the NAACP the same year that Obama was yeah, elected, poor. which you know, okay, before a couple yeah. of months before, right? Um, and and. What I, I, you know, I personally recall and and I unfortunately recall it on a visceral level. What a special time that felt like it was in America. Like it just felt like, you know, just like this book. It felt like there was this, you know, I'll say this, you know, Obama, I'm sure would say this himself. I'm a Chicago girl. Uh I live in Chicago I grew up here. Um, You know, he ran on a platform of hope. We um I think are still struggling to reach that your book is a book about hope and about healing. And you talk a lot, obviously about the family in this book and not just in the linear ways. I mean, obviously we were just talking about your grandmother. Uh, One of my favorite anecdotes in the book is when I believe it's your mom who's like traveling abroad and she's doing (laughs) all this stuff. And she writes back about the caste system in the Philippines. Like, well, you know, and she's like really breaking down like the whole, like, probably the colorism of it all, which we're going to get back to, by the way. But like, you know, she's like, well, cast wise, it'd be this and this and this. And your great grandmother writes back like, honey, you a hundred percent (laughs) Negro. Don't forget it. Like, and I just thought that was like, well, I was like, this is it. Like, this is, this is the quote. This is the tweet. As they say, this is the one. But, um, you know, I think culturally it's so, we lose steam, right? We lose hope. We lose that momentum. And, um, and and yet, you point out here in this book, and we, we hear it, but I don't know that we absorb it. That everything old is new again. Like nothing nothing is actually new. None of the, you know, progressive policies we have are new. None of the racism we face is new. None of the absurdity we're seeing is new. Um, how do you translate that to hope? I don't. Yeah, no.
0: But I'd love to hear it in your own words. A couple of greats. So one thing is that I encourage people to always have the faith of their foremothers, of their forefathers. I have a Black mm-hmm. woman who, in her life, she has become much wealthier. You know, she she's uh, 70 years old. She and her son, she's in her focused on multi-generational wealth right now, they have a little real, you know, like a small real estate empire. And she's like, but I'm so worried about my grandson and the world that we're leading to. My grandson was just born, this and that, and, you know, mm-hmm. Trayvon Martin and the planet, and I said, Sister, the most important thing is to live with the same faith that your grandmother raised you with. Because mm-hmm. if this was 100 years ago, your grandmother would have been, you know, a probably a, a young lady. We would be like two years now would be a year from Black Wall Street being burned in Tulsa. It'd be a couple of years mm-hmm. after the Red Summer when all the Black vets from World War Two, World War One, were lynched. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. Rosewood would have happened like last week. You know, like, like you know, whenever like our Black folks come into the world, like look around, it's like there's something to be scared of for sure. And then you mm-hmm. got to ground yourself and say. but my people survived worse, (laughs) you know, and and they kept moving forward. Like, um, and so it is also for this country. I mean, this country seems to always be fearing, you know, the Cuban Missile Crisis, or it's the Civil War, or it's Hitler, or it's, but there's always threats, Mm -hmm. and we push through, right? We push through. Mm -hmm. Cultivating Mm -hmm. that resilience, finding that place for you is critical. The other thing I'd say though, is that one of the things I do in this book to talk about the pirate woman from Madagascar is I I dig into my DNA. I dig into the family tree. I try to figure out where we come from, but also who we're connected to. And it helped me to understand, in part, just how completely unnatural the segregated world where parents grew up in was. Because if you go back like a 100 years before that, well, my grandmother's grandfather's being raised in a house where he knows that uh, the owner is his uncle. The slave owner is his uncle. And it appears, because that, you know, he would walk out of slavery at 17 at the end of the Battle of Appamax. really like, out literally. Of yes. And yes. he's walking out of his uncle's house, and he knows his uncle is an outspoken cousin to Robert E. Lee. And not 18 years later, but Tommy's 35. He is a bona fide leader amongst Black Republicans in the state. He leads them into a coalition uh, that was transformative, uh, that saved the free public schools. We'll, we'll give all that away. Cause it's a wild mm-hmm. coalition. You have to ask yourself, like, where did he get this hubris from? What, what made him think that right. he was qualified to lead that state? Well, part of the equation had to be the blood in his veins. That well, there's you know, there's all these other guys I'm related to, have been running the state for a long time, they haven't done such a great job. Maybe I actually could do better. <laughs> <laughs> <And> so you <laughs> brought us the journey to basically reckon with the fact our country at origin, you know, in the earliest colonies was a very abusive and dysfunctional family, but it was still a family and people understood yeah. that, you know, that I had, I had sat there with the, with the will of that owner in my hand and he was protecting my grandmother's great grandfather, her grandfather's dad. Only enslaved right. person mentioned wasn't freeing him, which would have been the right thing. But he also clearly cared about this person and was trying to limit the the hell he might be cast into as the owner's dying. Skip Gates helped you know, I said, to Skip, like, what is going on here? He said, well, Ben, based on the DNA and other historical documents and this will, what I would say is this, the owner is dying. And he knows that his manservant, the slave that he's talking about, Frederick by my great-grandfather, is his older brother by six years. And they would have been raised in the nursery of that plantation together. and They would have been basically mm-hmm. bonded to each other, um, essentially from that man's birth. The older brother would have been assigned to take care of him, as he continued to do. And he's trying to protect his brother, even though he doesn't have the courage to, to free him call work. him that yeah yeah
1: i mean and we hear this story over and again over and over again uh, i want to talk about family a little more when we uh come right back because your book actually it opens with a really interesting <laughs> anecdote oh, we so going to get to that <laughs> and i will come right back with ben jealous and a little more writing black
2: The Griot Black Podcast Network is here, and it's everything you've been waiting for. News, talk, entertainment, sports, and today's issues, all from the Black perspective. Ready for real talk and Black culture amplified? Be inspired. Listen to new and established voices now on the Griot Black Podcast Network. Listen today on the Griot Mobile app and tune in everywhere great podcasts are heard.
1: All right, we are back with more writing black and Ben jealous and uh, his book which came out in January 2023 never forget our people were always free a parable of American healing. Um, you know, uh, then you open this book with this anecdote you're at a you're at a dinner that you you know, uh, or an event that you had been avoiding attending and you were like, Oh, you know, it was just so convenient. I was, you know, happen to be in this city at this time, it was basically free, I'm gonna go. And you end up seated. Now, I'm not a person who believes there's any accidents. And I'm sure after this incident, you weren't either. But you end up sitting next to this couple. And, you know, you're making small talk with them. And you come to find out that the wife in this couple is essentially your yeah. cousin. Um, but not in the way that we black people typically nope. say cousin. Uh, tell us a little about that encounter well, and that how. Well, it was wild for <laughs> <really> having <laughs> dinner, right?
0: And I, and I admittedly was a little drunk. There had been a cocktail party and then there was wine at dinner, but the food hadn't showed up yet, you know? And so you're in that little dangerous space where you're like, I didn't, you know, I thought there'd be something absorbing. this alcohol in my stomach. <laughs> and, and that tends to make me, who was already a candid person, even more candid. And so this guy and I are talking. Mm-hmm. I'm like, "Where y'all from?" And it's clear that his wife's family and my family are from the same little place in Virginia, and we have the same family name. And well, names mean something in the South. And when you're yeah. when you're light skinned, there's really no denying what it likely means. And uh, your family's been light skinned for you know since slave days. And so. Mm. I just kind of look at him and say, sir, I don't know how to say this. So I'm pretty sure your wife's family what you used to tell my mama's saying. And he was from Minnesota. So the first thing he does is he switches chairs. The baby, like, you need to talk to this guy. Like, I don't know. I don't know. You know, I don't know what to do. And, and, and then she's all up in my face. He's an 80-year-old. You know, and At the time, I was in my 30s, early 30s. And you know, she's like half century older than me. And she just stared at me. And he goes, come here, baby. Give me a kiss i always knew i had black family and i was just like well it beats you slapping me which is what i was like a oh. little right. right stuff just got weird right exactly. and <laughs> and then she starts talking about mammy like mammy's mommy like i always thought like if I, if I ever heard a little you know patrician white person in the south talk about their mammy they would say like i mammy like my nanny like a rich kid Although, it, it, see, to me, it just brought, like, straight, like, Gone
1: with the Wind oh, vibes. Like, I
0: was like, no, that's, ex-
1: that, that you call her yeah, Mammy. She, uh, yeah. That right, Like, that's no, her name. And,
0: <laughs> so Mammy had raised her since so she was 12. And she said, you know, um, I said, yeah, well, what makes you think that Mammy just go with the flow? You know, that Mammy uh, was family. And she said, well, because when my mama and her sisters got to squabble on the party line, Man, we could on the and squash that argument in 15 seconds. flat," said, in the Bland family, all in blood can do that. Mm. And she went on to explain that she had been raised in San Francisco by this very antebellum family. Her mom was, you know, did, was so old she didn't expect that she could have a baby, and she did. Her brothers were almost adults by the time she was born. They... Got into a sword fight because one of the Abraham Lincoln's biography of the house, and they would not stop till they drew blood. I mean, it was just a hardcore antebellum family she was raised in, and yet she had had this hole in her heart since she was 12 when her mom, without warning, said, Mammy, back, because it was time to turn her into a young lady, and that was mom's job to train her to be a white lady. Um, and she'd mm-hmm. been looking for her black family since she was 12.
1: And I, I mean, you know, the reason this story fascinated me so much was like, you know, well, I, I mean, several reasons, you know, coming from a light skinned family, myself, that we are descendants of the transatlantic slave trade. Um, I was born in Minnesota. So I was like, that sounds very <laughs> Minnesota nice, young man. That's exactly how we are. Um, but, you know, this idea that we all really are kind of like one two steps away, you know, from from an encounter just like this. Oh, I saw the same um, thing happen
0: between Merle Evers and John McCain at the 2008 NAACP convention. And, you know, I've run for office. I can't imagine what it's like to run for president. John showed up, you know, looking like a little bleary eye. you know, like he'd been doing this grind for mm-hmm. over a year. And Merle Evers gets right up at his face and she says, John, you know my people are from West Point, too. We come off the old McCain plantation. That's right, John. You and I are family. And John McCainy was just like, ah. but you know, it's Merle Evers, so it's like, it's like <laughs> as, as if Coretta Scott King's like, we're yeah. family. And he's like, you just want to be like, cool, great, right. like that's exciting. But he also, you know, it it was definitely messing messing with his head a bit, right? and you know, understandably. Uh, so. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Oh,
1: my gosh. I can't even imagine. Like, I'd be so, first of all, I'd be so starstruck, but he might not be, No, I think he was. I mean, I mean that I, you know, story is like, like...
0: an American treasure that I think anybody, you know... Yeah. I agree. Yes. Yes.
1: All right. We're going to talk more about uh, that and, you know, end this color conversation and the craft of writing because, you know, I think people often forget for all your um, political leadership, your gubernatorial run... Uh, in Maryland, like I think people forget that you are an accomplished and acclaimed journalist, and I, I think you know we talk about writing. Sure, talk about writing it. a little bit with you. We come back more uh, with more writing black and Ben Jealous. All right, we are back with Ben Jealous and more writing black. We were just talking about the incredible Merle Evers, and you know she is one of p- several people who gets name checked in this book. And you know, listen, when I say name checked, I think it's really important to note like. Your name checking is so organic, I can't even really call it that. I mean, you are god brothers with Dave Chappelle, who also features really heavily in this book. You guys have several kind of pivotal experiences together, which one
0: would when you've known each other I'm your still, whole life. I'm still referred to <laughs> you know? by some of the old black comics who open for him as his Puerto Rican bodyguard because when you like in New York, you just Puerto Rican, and I was a college athlete. That's and they true. Were just a- I was hanging out and reading books because I was the bodyguard. It's like, you know. Our fathers were best friends. His father was my godfather. We had reconnected in New York City at the age of 18 and quickly developed a bond that has lasted our entire adult lives. We both found our calling when we were 14 years old. He in comedy clubs, me in the streets organizing. Way in the back of our minds, each of us knew that we were ultimately trying to live up to the example set by the men in our family who were the first generation to lead after slavery.
1: Listen, I'm a former New Yorker myself, and And um, (laughs) I I also met, listen, I met Dave when I was around 20, about 1920. I I remember clearly the eras you were discussing in New York. I was a New York college student myself at that same age. We may have, we may
0: have. we have been at the Boston Comedy Club down by NYU.
1: Maybe, maybe, you know, I might have actually, I was at no, Sarah no, no. Lawrence, but, but
0: if you, you know. you met Dave, that's um, where he was performing back then, every, kind of every night. It was like a sharecropper yeah. in that place for a few years. Now, <laughs> no, no, like real talk. No, <laughs> we're, we're, we were 18 years old, we were six months apart, and, and the Boston Comedy Club mm-hmm. says to Dave, who's you know was at the Duke going into school of performing arts, and he graduated from year, school a year after me, when you graduate, come up to New York and we'll put you up in this beautiful house and you could perform and then he gets there and they're like and at the end of the month like we settle up and we say well, how many hours did you perform and how much did we pay in the rain how much did we pay for food and it was like the company store from it was a great way to start but it was hard life to live
1: yeah yeah i mean you know it's so interesting because like you are you know, so plugged in just organically. I mean, obviously you have a tremendous career on your own had you never been related to any of these, these people. And, and, you know, and I still think of you as a pretty young person. So I'm always looking forward to what's to come. But, you know, um, one of the striking things about this is that you're hitting this note, uh, you know, when we talk about the craft of writing, you know, and, and what resonates with people, you are hitting, I think, a really rare, sweet spot with this book in which we are both hitting on some really relevant and relatable cultural touchstones, whether it be Dave or Ms. just Stacey. some of the other things that, you know, happened in, in the nineties in New York, or Stacey Abrams is like heavily featured in this book. You know, all these kind of um people who you know, this it's almost like this prescient view on what we now know they became right. Um, In addition to yourself and all of you kind of find your purpose really early in life, but also, you know, you as a writer, you know, I think it is very frequent that people, even with Barack Obama, that one's political career eclipses this incredible writing talent, the incredible talent they have for communicating a moment or an idea or both or philosophy. Um, I would love to hear how you grew no. as a writer,
0: um, you know, in this no, process. Well, I mean, in the process, yeah. wow, I really did. Yeah. You know, my, my first lessons in being a writer, um, came from my mom, but my first professional ones came from Charles Tisdale at the Jackson Advocate, um, whose newspaper was the most frequently firebombed newspaper in America in the eighties and nineties. We were firebombed. Mm. Yeah. Jackson, Mississippi. Jackson, We were firebombed twice in the 80s, once in the early 90s, and once in 98. And I showed up uh, to be a reporter there because I was an organizer. And the head of the Mississippi NAACP, who was an ally of the Republican governor at the time, was trying to run me out of the state. She had branded me a high yellow communist from New York City. I said, lady, you are right on one account. I'll let you figure out which one. Right. (laughs) The one I can't help, right?
2: (laughs) And and
0: (laughs) You know uh, you know you know you just don't go to go to the Ivy League to like be a communist like it's what a bad investment but you know, <laughs> but there she was trying to run me out of state and Mr. Tisdale gave me a job so I could keep organized and the most important lesson he taught me was this you no know, there I was my first day I had to turn in three stories by Tuesday afternoon to be edited Wednesday and published on Thursday and it was Monday morning and I was just like where, where do I find these stories? I'm like, welcome to my world. And yes. he, said, <laughs> he said, brother, just walk outside and start talking to people. They will tell you what's going on. And so, mm. you know, that was actually my favorite job of my life. Me and my Jeep and Mississippi, two years, just driving around, listening to people's stories, learned a lot about the human condition, learned a lot of wisdom. You know, the the thing that sticks with me kind of triumphantly is, well, like my trophy of like wisdom from that time. I asked a guy, to, uh, a bluesman, to explain the difference between blues and gospel because I was covering both, and at the edges, the genres were blending together in this in this uh, at this event. And he said, "Oh, brother, it's simple. It's just a matter of tense. Gospel's about the trouble to come. Blues is about the trouble that already done mm. happen." Yeah, I once mm. stumped Harry Lennox, the actor who spent 12 years teaching music before he, you know, did like the the five heartbeats. I said, brother, explain to me the difference between blues and gospel. 20 minutes later, all this conversation about syncopation, I just hit him with, with what Catholic Sims said to me, and he was like, yeah, or you could say that. <laughs> <laughs> you know? all right. But, you know, in this book, writing this book, like, I, I had this crisis. This was a project for four years. I took it on in the depression mm-hmm. of having lost a race for governor and kind of not really knowing, you know, I... <laughs> I love that you admit that, by the way. I don't think people are very transparent about how oh painful my gosh. the Oh you know, I mean, can be, be.
1: <laughs> when you go for something that yes, anything means something you know, to you. Yeah, when
0: your yeah. people start from the bottom, the way that you know how to win is to put, and just give it everything. Right. Just just give it everything. Throw everything at it. Yeah. And I did that, yeah. and and I lost, and I, um, I mean, we we won in a lot of ways. Stacey was very gracious. You know, here we were, two people have been very close friends since we were 19 years old. She always knew she was going to run for governor. I never did. Like, I'm kind of like the Forrest Gump of the group. And yet here I was running for governor. And she was so poised in her speech, and I was just pissed. She was known throughout the state as a rising star in Georgia politics. To my daughter, she was simply Aunt Stacy, And to me, she was a friend who always had a little bit more common sense than I had. I'm a fifth-generation member of the NAACP. Children in my family have always been raised with the hard truths about our national sickness of racism. Still, Stacy understood, well before I did, that the hard truths to be aired in the church that day would be too much for any 7-year-old child to bear. So I I ended up with a ghostwriter who um, really didn't get me and didn't get the complexity of the stories I was telling and just kept trying to simplify it so he could tell the story and he could understand it. And I had to fire him. And that was hard because I liked the guy, but it just wasn't working. Mm-hmm. And then I, you know, I go back to the publisher and the publisher's like, cool, sorry that didn't work out. You gotta have the book to us in two months. And I was like, like, you you, you guys fucked me up with this guy. I blew all the money on him. Like, they're like, yeah, it sucks, man, but two months or just give us the money back. And I'm like, but I, put it on your, all right, fine. So then I was really, really stuck. And I was like, wait a sec. I'm a very good extemporaneous speaker. Why am I sitting here trying to compose stuff at a computer? And I just sat back and I turned on my voice recorder. And so then I turned it off and I actually would um, write an outline like I would for a speech, like eight notes on the back of a three by five card. And I put put that on my Mm -hmm. computer screen and I would just talk. And I cranked out 90% of this book in two weeks.
1: I love this story so much. I love it because I think, you know, again, this is a podcast not just about the books that are written, but how they got there. And I think this is a story we have not heard before, but it's just as viable as any other writing story we've heard. And I love, love, love that you reveal that to us. Cause I think that is something that everybody
0: can well, relate yeah, to. you got to right? find the way, you know, you know <laughs> that, that you get the words out and I'm somebody who had a crippling yeah. stutter as a kid. And, and the first lesson was I could not read speeches. I can do that now, but I couldn't do that then. And, But, you know, honestly, at 15, like my vanity, I was just like, even though I lost that debate because I was incomprehensible, I couldn't read my speech, I looked pretty good in the photograph. So I was like, I better figure this out. And so I sat there. I had no no resources for a speech, you know, like anything I would give my kids now. I didn't have any of that. And so Mm -hmm. I was just like, well, I don't stutter when I sing. So I'll try speaking with a rhythm. And I was like, well martin luther king says that he's got was just reading things about speech you know trying to educate myself martin luther king says that his best speeches were written as notes on the back of an envelope so i'll give myself basically two three by five cards and let me see what i can do and it worked out really well all of my speeches i've ever given have been extemporaneous and it works out there you were just a
1: font of, of, of not just information but inspiration because I think like there are a ton of kids who have stuttered and who are grappling with that who are going to find so much from oh. you sharing that um, we're going to be right back in one second with uh, the last end of Writing Black with Ben Jealous
2: the Grio black podcast network is here and it's everything you've been waiting for news talk entertainment sports and today's issues all from the black perspective ready for real talk and black culture amplified be inspired listen to new and established voices now on the Grio black podcast network listen today on the Grio mobile app and tune in everywhere great podcasts are heard All right. We
1: are back. Vangelis, you are just, I, first of all, oh, you're a delightful you. guest. I'm just enjoying you so much. But also, I think you're so inspiring. I think um, your story, and, and listen, as a as a light-skinned woman growing up in America, um, and all the Unsaid, unspoken, but known yeah. stuff that yeah. comes with that. The medium brown. Like
0: Dave and I talk about this all the time. Me too. Like, when you're at, at either end of the spectrum, so much silly trips get thrown on you. I just want to know what it's like to be just like listen. middly black, just like just like you know
1: like that's right, right, just middle <laughs> road, right, exactly that, you know. And and, and listen, I'm not gonna say in, there's nobody in America like anti-blackness, or or in the world, yeah. anti-blackness persists everywhere um and as we know you know one drop rules are one drop rules but you know it's so interesting i don't i've never wanted to be yeah. anything but black it's well, one of my favorite saying, things to be re- both let me tell you biologically something about that.
0: and socially let me tell, but let me tell you something about that <laughs> so i was featured in a book called facing forward when i was like 20 it was, was portraits. this was like okay you of like black coffee table books yes I yes gonna... i have several and yes. it was the first interview <laughs> of the book and so like I would get kind of the line share, of the media calls. So one day ABC News calls and they say, We're gonna interview four men from the book and put you on the nightly news. We're sending the producer out, we'll meet you at the church in Harlem where I was working it does like, great and the producer comes and she says, Why is it the hardest thing in America to be a young black man? And I said now Admittedly, I've been hanging out at Columbia with Kimberly Crenshaw. This the early 90s. So uh, she didn't know what she was walking into. I was like, well, looking at the lives of my mother and my sister, I'm not sure that's the case. As far as I can tell, racism and sexism compound each other. And I certainly have had some privilege of being a young man. She was like, and, and then thank for and I, said, <laughs> I said, but just thinking with it for a second. I said, you know, now that I think about it, I know a lot of white kids on campus who want to be black, but I haven't actually got a black person who truly wants to be white. Have you interrogated whiteness? <laughs> but yeah, they they put the three brothers on the air. They would just, cut <laughs> I love it. I love it. I love it. I love it.
1: Now, I love it. No, I love that so much because I think like, you know, we do go through this thing. Those of us who, I mean, listen, you know, you speak very carefully in this book about your own um, heritage. You know, you just saw, you talked about, you know, you being darker than your grandparents you're you're the product of an interracial union you know um and i do think that the colorism aspect uh, you know that we can never escape in america this like simultaneous anti-blackness that is pervasive in every aspect of our life but also this idea of this proximity to whiteness being something that's desirable and you know um Oh, it's such a it's it's loaded. It's there's never I don't I've I've yet to find a very artful way to speak about what is my very human experience, what is the human experience of so many people that I know, and and how we continue to navigate race and and hope. I think in those terms, you know, especially because you know, as Isabel Wilkerson pointed out, we have yeah. our own caste system here in America that's very weird and gross. And-
0: but let me just and shameful. just dive into something and, here. and shameful. <laughs> into something, <laughs> you know, Which is, so. you know, as we get older, it's less interesting to, to perform. It's, you know, it's more urgent just to be yourself. Like <laughs> God made you all the ways that God made you. And God forbid you spend your whole life performing as if you're just 10% or 20% or one set of factors right. of who you are. And so, right, you know, when I was young, so much of um being a 10X black male was like fitting into a certain narrative, and I knew I didn't fit into that narrative, you know, the narrative of you know, I didn't mm-hmm. have a dad or have a dad, he was white, he was a great dad, you know, um, and my black grandfather was my other dad, and he was a great dad so so i I just wasn't um. I had invitations to write kind of memoir type books in my twenties and my thirties. I would never write them because I wasn't ready to just be public about my commitment to just being myself. And that was the fun part of this book was to say, what if we just accept that we're connected to all the people that we're actually connected to, like. That I share blood right. with Robert E. Lee and with Thomas Jefferson, like like I, yeah, it was and with and with Dick Cheney me, apparently, Obama <laughs> already claimed that one, so you know I'm gonna let him have like and like that's true that's true the family swap to <laughs> him. To let they him have, have Dick Cheney, Cheney. okay, <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, but it's like, um, uh. And it was actually very, very healing for me because part of it was understanding. What allowed me to do that was that the lack people to be enslaved to the family understood that too, and it wasn't yeah. all negative. It's not to say it was positive. It was not to say that slavery wasn't horrible. But it is to say that I found an artifact of my grandmother's great-grandfather's brother who was a slave owner trying to protect him and allow him to live the rest of his life with some dignity and i can't completely ignore that you you know what i'm saying like i have to Mm -hmm. recognize that um that that happened and that his son would have known that he was related to robert e lee and in his son's own estimation of his own political possibilities that may have weighed in a positive way just to say you know what other people who share my blood have run this state why can't i Mm -hmm. now and that's Mm -hmm. again segregation was so artificial you know even as compared to to the to to the the scandalous troubling intimacies of slavery that absolute separation Mm -hmm. was uh that that we emerged from was completely artificial do you believe that, um, as we often hear, race is a? Oh, I mean, a thousand percent. I mean, what, what's the alternative? That there are multiple human races? By that, you know, by that theory, right? The old, you know. I mean, I love the biological things that make me no, black. I'm not going like, to front, those but those <laughs> biological <laughs> things make you part of the African diaspora, right? Right. Yes. But of course, but so yes. like Africa isn't a social construct. Europe isn't a social construct. But the trip that we lay. On, you know where your ancestors came from. that's absolutely it's worse than the social yeah. construct it's like a failed science fiction you know experiment like they said oh you know they wake up in like they mid 1700s these people who are falling in love with Europeans um, and and their science revolution I don't know now, like a thousand years after after Egypt's or 1500 or 2,000 years you know Egypt's doing like brain surgery <laughs> and, um, before Jesus was born right so so yeah. There's all of that. And they're like, yeah, there's like multiple races and these black people, they're subhuman. And then they call people like me mulattoes because we're supposed to descend from like two different species. And it's like, well, me do still have kids, but I got two. So like, what else do you guys got as a theory? <laughs> that part. Right. <laughs> right. Exactly. That part.
1: By the way, I wasn't disagreeing no, no, with you. No. But it's my job no, no, no. to ask those hard questions. So let me ask you this. And I don't know if that was a hard. I'm just question. having fun. I'm sorry <laughs> if I cut you off. Let me ask you this question. I'm so glad you're having fun. No, it makes me have fun that you're having fun. And on that note because we are a podcast about uh reading and writing black. Uh what do you read? What inspires you? Who inspires you? Uh and it doesn't have to be books. It could be, you know, thinkers and writers like who who inspires you in that realm you know, of already- words? knowing words are so ex- important I read
0: short things <laughs> because i'm a single dad so the okay. amount of time i have to read for myself yeah i want to get to them from the beginning to the end and the time that i have so i it, re- and i i revisit rumi all the time uh, my dad uh, yeah. st- um Good. developed sort of, a, sort of a sufi meditation practice when he was teaching in eastern turkey and that was part of my upbringing your dad was a Unitarian and a Stufi. Mom was an Episcopalian and a Buddhist. Um, you know, the other thing that, that I go back to a, a lot is the Christian mystic Khalil Gibran. Re- reading Beyond the Prophet in some of his other works is one that I refer to all of my students, frankly, especially the young women who, who struggle with ambition um, and just being out there with their ambition, which Stacey never struggled with since I've known her, 19 um, uh, there's a one called The Ambitious Violet. So I read a lot of Frederick Douglass. There was a point in my life when I realized I'd read kind of everything I could ever find by King. And I asked myself, who was King for King? Who was that person from the previous century mm-hmm. who captivated everybody's imagination about the possibilities of America and of our people with their oratory? Well, that's, that's Frederick Douglass. And Douglass blows my mind. You know, he... When I was doing all the work on marriage of at the NAACP and trying to keep the NAACP together, while it you know recognized that like you can't separate the, the gay community and the black community because yeah you mean know, be disowning for like yes. every church choir you know's director at the very least, right? Right. <laughs> you know? that part. is that? Right. <laughs> um, church without gay people would just sound a lot worse. But they, you, know, <laughs> you know, as we were we were going through that, I realized that. Frederick Douglass, all the things that we, you know, remember him as civil rights leader, father of black Republicans, you know, businessman, statesman, diplomat, was also the consummate ally of the 19th century. His greatest speech after the Civil War Mm. is called Our Composite Nation. It is his tirade against the Chinese Exclusion Act. His greatest feat in many ways, that was the 14th Amendment was the 15th Amendment, because in response to the 14th Amendment, they introduced the Chinese Exclusion Act because of the Native birth provision. And he gives a beautiful speech. But when the 15th Amendment was passed, which probably was as great as accomplishment, certainly was the, the apex, abolishing slavery, equal protection, right to vote. That was like the crescendo. You know what he says? He says, like, this is wonderful. I'm not going to cast a ballot until women have the right to vote too. Drop the mic, walk away. Like, (laughs) that's like it's incredible, and so, yeah. um, But that's the prototype.
1: I mean, that's the necessity. We need everybody to do that to like reach the hand back to the group that's
0: uh, more marginalized than you. So, as a leader, I'd say the most important things to read are the things that shape your mindset. And spiritual mysticism, both Islamic and Christian, is had a huge influence on me. And the words of King, but really his King, Frederick Douglass, are what cont- continue to inspire me. I love that. Um, and what's next for you?
1: I know you just put out this book. And I know that you have a new role. Yeah. Uh, the Sierra Club
0: uh, as its executive director. Well, you know, but what's, what's honestly, next? Honestly, it's like the, the second half of my life is next. I, for biological reasons and the way that my paternal grandfather died, I was pretty sure I was going to be dead by 50 and then I figured out what had killed mm-hmm. him and that it was killing me. And I dealt with it. And my blood pressure without any medication, just with an intervention, dropped from 186, 127. Oh. Yeah. Well, I figured out that my on. grandfather died yeah. from undiagnosed <laughs> sleep apnea by, going, by getting all of his symptoms. And then I realized I oh, had the same. Yeah. And when I was present in NAACP, my blood pressure went up okay. 10 points a year. Starting at 127 and five and a half years later it was 186. And it showed no sign of abating, okay. And, um, and so I dealt with it. My blood pressure's down. My black grandfather lived in 92. My black grandmother lived to 105. So I'm just feel like I've started kind of all over mm-hmm. and I'm raising kids and there's nothing more urgent to me than figuring out how we save this planet. So that's what the, you know, this next stage of life is about is really applying The lessons that I learned from King's protégés, and I studied under several of them as a young organizer, Reverend Orange, Dr. Lowry, Andrew Young. Yeah. And at least two of them said this to me. They said the King would always say to them two things. One, you can't say it in 25 words. Come back when you can because nobody's going to remember what you had to say. And two, (laughs) if you're comfortable in your coalition, if you are comfortable in your coalition, your coalition is too small. And so what I'm focused on is the Air Club is building a coalition big enough to lead this country to do its part in saving this planet.
1: I love that. I love that. And it sounds like, you know, we'll, we'll want to chat further with you about uh, conservation. Uh, I love that. But in the meantime, I want to thank you so much for Writing uh, Black and talking about your latest book, Never Forget, Our People Were Always Free, A Parable of American Healing. You guys should pick this up. Saying that to all of our listeners and viewers, Um, and buy one for your mom. A delightful conversation. Buy one for your mama, too, because <laughs> it is Black History Month. And so never forget, our people were always free. <laughs> okay. All right. Thank you so much, Benjellis. Thank you. Um, God bless you. delightful. We really appreciate the time. God bless you, too. Hey, it's about that time again for me to talk about my favorites. That is my favorite books that are related to this week's podcast. And this week, talking to Benjellis, you know, brought up so much stuff for me. Um, it actually brought up one of our recent guests, Charlene hunter Galt. And my people, five decades of writing about black lives, you know, like one of the things I loved about Ben's book is, you know, you're drawing in these other pop cultural figures and very well-known moments and really giving them like a really intimate lens. And you're also really giving an intimate lens into the everyday lives of black people, whether it be on Speaker's Corner in Harlem or, you know, the communities that we built in, uh, you know, The summer communities we built or the vacation resorts that were built by many of our elders during segregation. And I just think that like both Ben and Charlene do an incredible job of really taking us there and giving us a um, real real time glimpse at like what that culture was like and what what that striving was really like. Uh, Similarly, listen, it's on Hulu. We can't promote it enough. It is a Pulitzer Prize winning, uh, you know, article series for a reason. But the 1619 Project, y'all, like if you really want to understand, you know, the impact and import of black people, black lives, black influence, black ingenuity, black artistry, engineering, et cetera, in America and why we deserve all the things. (laughs) This is an incredible book to uh, engage with. And I highly recommend the series as well because it's undeniable. And as they try to strip more and more of our history from actual education in America, as if our history is not part of American history, which, spoiler alert, it is, um, we have to do our part to make sure that it stays alive in our minds and the minds of those who need to hear it, whether that be our children or other people's children. So those are my favorites for this week. I hope you will join us next week for another episode of Writing Black. Thanks so much for joining us for this week's episode of Writing Black. As always, you can find us on the Grio app or wherever you find your podcasts.
3: I'm political scientist, author, and professor, Dr. Christina Greer, and I'm host of The Blackest Questions on the Grio's Black Podcast Network. This person invented ranch dressing around 1950. Who are they? I have no idea. This all began as an exclusive Black History Trivia Party at my home in Harlem with family and friends. And they got so popular, it seemed only right to share the fun with our Griot listeners. Each week, we invite a familiar face on the podcast to play. What was the name of the person who was an enslaved chief cook for George Washington and later ran away to freedom? In 1868, this university was the first in the country to open a medical school that welcomed medical students of all races, genders, and social classes. What university was it? No, th- this is why I like doing stuff with you because I leave educated. I was not taught this in Alabama public schools. Question yeah. number three. You ready? Yes. I'm okay. To redeem myself. How do we go from Kwanzaa to like these obscure? Get ad- a sport, <laughs> Get this a is sport. like the New York Times crossword from a Monday to a Saturday right or wrong, because all we care about is the journey and having some fun while we do it. I'm excited and also a little nervous. (laughs) Oh, listen, no need to be nervous. And as I tell all of my guests, this is an opportunity for us to educate ourselves because Black history is American history. So we're just gonna have some fun. Listen, some people get zero out of five, some people get five out of five. It doesn't matter. We're just gonna be on a little intellectual journey together.
2: Latoya Cantrell?
3: That's right, Mary Latoya Cantrell. Hercules Posey. Born in 1754 and he was a member of the Mount Vernon slave community widely admired for his culinary skills. I'm going to guess afro Close, it's okay. Afro-nation. So Never last year, that. according to my research, it's Samuel Wilson, AKA Falcon wrong wrong i i am i am disputing this very 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 99.9999 sure that it is representative john lewis who is also from the state of alabama that lets you know christina we got some goodness come out of alabama there's something in the water in alabama and you are absolutely correct the harder they come close oh wait uh the harder they fall that's right I'm one of those people that, that just changes one word. <laughs> I mean, in, I know this show too well. I just don't know nothing today. It's I'm going to pour myself a little water while you tell me the answer. The answer is Seneca Village, which began in 1825 with the purchase of land by a trustee of the AME Zion Church. You know why games like this make me nervous? I don't know if I know enough black. Do I know enough how black am I? Oh, my Lord. We're going to find out in public. So give us a follow, subscribe, and join us on The Blackest Questions.